The second reading this morning is from Romans chapter 3. I will read verses 21 through 31. Hear the word of God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith, for we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the Jews, the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, it is by the words of your mouth that you called the universe into being. This morning we pray that by your word again you would call us into new being, into new life, into life in Christ. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Christianity preaches a strange doctrine, strange in the eyes of the world. Christianity teaches that the good that Jesus did, his perfect sinless life, his perfect obedience to God's law, that the good that Jesus did causes us to be blessed, and the evil that we do, our sinful lives, our selfishness, our rejection of God's law, causes Jesus to suffer. It is a strange doctrine because it is so unfair. The one who is perfectly good suffers a gruesome death and abandonment by God the Father. And the ones who are thoroughly evil enjoy God's favor in this life and in eternal life after the grave. That is the heart of the gospel. It is a strange doctrine, strange in the eyes of the world. John Piper called it the most important paragraph in the Bible, the one that I just read a few moments ago from the book of Romans. It took over, uh, it took Piper 19 years as the pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis before he screwed up the courage to preach his way through Romans. And then he spent four weeks preaching just that one 
paragraph that we read this morning. And that's because this one paragraph from the book of Romans is the heart of the gospel. I don't want anyone to be under the illusion that the gospel of Jesus Christ is compatible with other doctrines that other religions teach. That it's compatible with other philosophies that secular people promote. It's not, and it's not. If you understand the gospel, you will understand that it is the opposite of Islam. It is the opposite of Hinduism. It is the opposite of every secular self-help, self-improvement philosophy since the time of Aristotle who wrote the Nicomachean Ethics, the very first self-help book. Now, if you talk to my wife... She will tell you that the Morrison clan that she married into likes to define themselves in opposition to others. I'm not sure if that's 100% true, but it is the case that I and my brothers have never been afraid to stand alone in our opinions. When I was in high school in a small town in southwest Missouri, deep in the reddest part of a red state, my brother Jim, the eldest brother, was a member of the Socialist Labor Party. We used to get the weekly people newspaper at our house each week. I don't know what the mailman thought. Brother Jim even got sent home from school one day for wearing a Karl Marx t-shirt. My brother Dave, who was a straight-A student, Captain of the football team, boyfriend to the homecoming queen. He turned down, in a very public way, membership in the National Honor Society because he thought that it bred conformity. When I attended a little hippie college in Vermont, a campus that thought that Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders was too conservative, I was the one student out of our total student population of 220, who refused to sign a petition calling for a freeze on the production of nuclear arms. This was back in the days of Ronald Reagan. Some of you remember him. Now, I know plenty of people in this congregation who also are willing to take uncomfortable stands. Stands in opposition to what the crowd is saying in that moment. Some of you oppositional people are a real burr under the saddle. But I respect you, and I respect your willingness to take an unpopular stand. And I hope that all of us recognize that the opinion of the crowd changes about as often as the fashions in clothing and hairstyle and music. Don't take the opinions of the world too seriously because they are always changing. Now, there also are plenty of us here who... Uh, who, whose approach to conflict is to seek out points of agreement and shared interests. For you, relationships are important and you're willing to invest the energy and the work that are needed to have a genuine conversation with people that you don't see eye to eye with. And I respect you. And I respect your Willingness to find common ground. I think as Christians and as a church as a whole, we need to demonstrate the instincts of both of those when we come to conflict. We need to stand firm on the revealed truth of Scripture. We need to stick unwaveringly to the deposit of faith given to us by the apostles 
And at the same time, without apology for what it is that we believe, we also need to cultivate honest, sincere, loving relationships with people who disagree. The Apostle Paul had met the resurrected Jesus. He had been discipled by the apostles themselves. And Paul had a special calling to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, to people who had a view of reality as far from the gospel as black is from white. And Paul was wildly successful in his ministry because he was crystal clear about what the gospel teaches even while he pursued people in love who did not yet receive that truth. Because Paul loved the people that he was sent to, Paul didn't compromise on what the gospel teaches. He could have. There were in Paul's day, and there are again in our day, a number of hybrids of Christianity and pagan philosophy. The scholarly term for these hybrids is Gnosticism, and there were lots of Gnostic groups in Paul's day which took some elements from Christianity and laid them over top of an alien pagan philosophy. But Paul rejects that path. Maybe it would have been easier. I'm not sure. Paul rejected a compromised gospel which leans halfway toward what the world already teaches. Paul rejected a compromised gospel because, as he has already told us in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes. There is no need to compromise when what you believe is the power of God. There is no need to compromise when what you believe is the key to people's salvation. Paul isn't afraid of taking an unpopular position. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of anyone who believes. And he was willing to face the abuse of the world. Ultimately, he was willing to face his own martyrdom in the hope that just one more person might be saved. The gospel is a strange doctrine. The gospel teaches that a perfect man suffered so that sinful men might be blessed. You'd think people would go for this message. But if you understand it, you will understand that it is contrary to everything the world teaches. Not long ago I was in Washington D.C. visiting my brother David who is an out-of-the-closet non-believer. And I was seated at a dinner next to his brother-in-law, who is another out-of-the-closet non-believer. And Bill, his brother-in-law, spent the whole evening bending my ear about how religion is stupid and awful and evil. I sat in this Thai restaurant for two hours listening to a man tell me why the world would be a better place if religion were outlawed. It's one of the occupational hazards of being a pastor, listening to people who have a beef with the church. Now, if I had told Bill, the brother-in-law, that I pumped septic tanks for a living, or that I played banjo in a bluegrass band, he would have said, oh, that's very interesting, and turned the other way. But all of the things that Bill said to me, and he said a lot of things, 
The Red Sea couldn't have parted. There's no archaeological evidence for the Jews being in the Sinai. Religion is the cause of every war. There were lots of religions that talked about resurrection and on and on. But as I was listening to him, I was thinking the whole time, none of these things matter. None of these things are essential to the gospel. If somehow, magically, we lost the book of Exodus and didn't know anything about the parting of the Red Sea, it's just too weird a story to make up anyway, it wouldn't change what we believe about Jesus and salvation. If every war had been caused by religion, a very dubious claim, by the way, It wouldn't change anything in what we believe about Jesus or salvation. If other religions talk about resurrection, and there's some that do, it wouldn't change anything that we believe about Jesus and salvation. Hmm. The complaints miss the point. One of the most important classes that I took at Princeton Seminary was a class on Hinduism. Now, Hinduism is very good at incorporating new material and new gods. They have one million gods already to begin with, so it's no problem bringing another one on board. There actually is a sect of Hinduism that includes Jesus in their pantheon. The Hindus have no problem, apparently, with Jesus because they have no problem with the idea of a God becoming a man or no problem with miracles, no problem with dead people coming back to life. But the point at which the Hindus balk when confronted with the gospel, is the point that Paul makes in Romans 3, chapter 24. We are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And the reason is simple. Hinduism teaches that each person is justified through his own efforts. Each person gets what he deserves. No person can justify another person. No person can bear the sin or the responsibility of another person. This is the Hindu idea of karma. What goes around comes around. The good that you do comes back to you as a blessing. And the evil that you do comes back to you as suffering. But in reality, it is the whole world, not just Hindus, who believe in karma. It's how we raise our kids. We reward good behavior and we punish bad behavior. It's how we structure our schools. Have all of the right answers and you get good grades. Peek at your neighbor's work during a test and you get a free trip to the principal's office. It's how we structure our workplaces. Hard workers get raises and lazy workers get pink slips. It's how we structure our relationships even sometimes. If you're meeting my needs, I'll stick with you. If you're not meeting my needs, I'm going to hit the road. Karma tells us that each person gets what he or she deserves. Each person is rewarded or punished for his or her performance. That's not just Hinduism. That's the whole world. But hear me clearly. The gospel is opposed to karma. Christianity teaches that the good that Jesus did brings us blessing. And that the evil that I did brought him suffering. Hindus have no problem with miracles or the resurrection of a God-man. What they reject is this idea that one man can bear the penalty of the sins of another man. What they reject is the idea that the goodness of one man could be credited to the account of another man. 
To them, that's just not fair. And it's not. Thanks be to God. In the gospel, Jesus bears the divine penalty for your sin and you enjoy God's favor and eternal life. Our sense of fairness and justice should be violated by the gospel. None of us would ever put up with a legal system that allowed evil people to prosper and left the good to suffer. Think for a moment of King David and Bathsheba. You all know this story. King David, a powerful man, master of all he surveys, is at home in Jerusalem while his army is out fighting in the field. He spies Bathsheba. She's beautiful, the wife of Uriah, one of his trusted generals, and he takes her, a man who's accustomed to getting what he wants. He betrays his friend Uriah, he commits adultery, he violates his marriage vows, but then things get worse. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. So David sends for Uriah, tells him to come home to his wife, hoping that he will think that the child is his. But Uriah is faithful to his responsibilities as a soldier and refuses to go home. And so David conspires to have him killed. Out of his own selfishness, David breaks his word, violates the trust of his friends, abuses the people under his power, commits adultery, and then kills a friend to cover up his crimes. Now tell me, what does justice or fairness look like in this case? What would be the karmic repercussion of David's sin? And now think for a moment what the gospel says to David. For two and a half chapters, Paul has been pounding home the point that all of us really are no better than King David. He says it again in Romans 3, 22 and 23. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. By the divine standard of justice, all of us are guilty as David. But the gospel says, a righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel says we are justified by His grace as a gift. The gospel says God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The gospel says we are justified by faith apart from the law. None of us is righteous before God based on our keeping of the law. All of us are guilty. And, by the way, the greatest sin of David was not the adultery or the murder. The greatest sin of David was that he denied the glory of God. But because of his great love for us, because of his overflowing mercy, God says that karmic justice will not rule. God solves the problem of our sin by bearing the penalty himself on the cross and then offering to justify us freely, to count us as though we were righteous, even though we're not, if we will only have faith in Christ. In verse 24, where we read, we hear, we are justified by God's 
grace as a gift. And it's important to see that this word justified is a passive verb. How many of you had English in high school? You know what passive verbs are. They're verbs that happen to you. They're not verbs that you do. The gospel does not say, go justify yourself and you will be saved. It says, God justifies you and you are saved. And you know what? If it weren't for this crazy, unfair, anti-karmic gospel, no one would be saved. Think of it this way. Your three-year-old has been playing in the mud in the backyard and you call her in to dinner. She comes into the house covered in filth from head to toe. She can't sit at the family dining table until she's cleaned up. Do you say to this young child, go wash yourself and then you can come to dinner? Or do you say, come here child, let me clean you up? This word justified in scripture is a legal term. It means to be right with the law. And we as habitual lawbreakers cannot justify ourselves. Oh sure, you can clean yourself up a little bit. You can impress some of your friends. You might even fool your pastor. But you cannot stand before Almighty God spotless and pure. And so God does that work for us. He justifies us by grace because He's merciful, because He's generous, and we can receive that gift by faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way. The prophet Isaiah put it this way. All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. In other words, even the good stuff that you do, Even the stuff that you're so proud of. Filthy rags. In the sight of Almighty God. So what God offers us for our filthy rags is a change of clothes. By faith in Jesus Christ, the perfect righteousness of Jesus is draped upon us like spotless robes. So that we are qualified to sit at the table of the king in the kingdom of God in presentable attire. It's a strange doctrine, this gospel. Part of what we're talking about this morning is very theological. We're talking about the doctrines of justification and atonement. And I want you to understand them. It's important for you to understand the basics of the gospel. But part of what we're talking about here today is actually very practical. Because all of us have been programmed to believe by 10,001 messages that the world has pumped into our hearts every single day of our lives that we are only justified if we justify ourselves. And I have seen the deadly consequences of that hopeless undertaking time. And again, the saddest part of being a pastor is watching people struggle and struggle to justify themselves. Working so hard, working so hopelessly, and all the while they can't seem to grasp the strange truth of the gospel. Jesus has paid the price. 
There's nothing left for you to do. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And if we place our faith in Him, our sins are washed away and we are perfectly righteous in the eyes of God. God no longer has a legal beef with us. The penalty has been paid and we've been set free. The heart of the gospel is this unworldly truth that we are not justified by our own efforts. We need to stop trying. But we can be justified before God if we will give up the struggle of self-justification and if we will commit our faith to the finished work of Christ. Now in this letter to the Romans, Paul is writing to people who are already Christians. He's writing to people who have put their faith in Jesus. They are already justified before Almighty God. They are born again. But it is a reality that as Christians we need to keep reminding ourselves of the basics of the gospel. We need to keep reminding ourselves that we are justified by God and not by our works because the devil will keep telling us otherwise. The devil loves to remind Christians of all of their sins. The devil loves to sidle up to you at a dinner and remind you of all the evil that the church has done. And we have committed many sins in our lives and through the history of the church. The Bible calls The devil, the accuser. That's his job. Sometimes Christians spend too much time listening to the accuser and not listening to Almighty God. And when that happens, you can get trapped into a pattern of guilt, into a pattern of trying to justify yourself through your own efforts, through your own work. Please don't do that. If you are a born-again Christian then the blood of Christ has already covered your sins and by faith in Jesus Christ, God counts you as perfectly righteous. You have nothing left to prove. We say that each week following our corporate prayer of confession, friends, hear and believe the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ. We are forgiven and that is true. So if you're a follower of Jesus... Stand firm in that knowledge. Stand firm that you have been justified by God. Not by yourself, you've been justified by God. And who else is going to call you to account if God won't? But if you are still holding on to the world's view of karmic justice, if you still believe that one is justified by their own efforts, if you have not yet made the leap of faith and trusted the crazy promises of the gospel, then I invite you to do that today. Take God at His Word. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. There is no way to win the performance game. There is no way to beat karma. You'll never be good enough on your own to feel right in front of the world or right with God. So give the gospel a try 
and discover what a relief it is to receive as a free gift the forgiveness of all of your sins and the complete righteousness of Christ. You can do that today. Father God, for your mercy, we give you thanks. We worship you for having made us and made us well and made this beautiful beautiful world. And we marvel at your willingness to forbear and to forgive. Thank you for the price that you were willing to pay so that we could survive, so that we could see you one day in glory. Lord, we pray this day that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, seal to our hearts the faith needed to be united with Christ, to know him as Lord and Savior, to be born again. Lord, we pray that you would give us the faith that we need. We don't have that in our own strength. Even that faith is a gift from you. And so we ask you now for that, for that gift. Give us the gift to receive your full forgiveness. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.